Welcome to Why Gifts Matter from the Core Gift Institute, a series of conversations spanning helping professions, spiritual traditions, and community encouragers who believe that knowing your gifts and giving them is an essential part of living a full life and creating healthy communities. Find out more about us at www.coregift.org. Hi, I'm Bruce Anderson from the Core Gift Institute. In this episode of Why Gifts Matter, we're talking with John McKnight and Peter Block. Both of them are thought of as founders in their fields, Peter in organizational development and John in asset-based community development. They're both hungry learners, and their paths intersected a few years ago around gifts and community building, and they've been eager to work and learn together ever since. This interview covers a lot of ground and gets at some of the questions about gifts that many are reflecting on these days. They start with the fundamental question of whether we see ourselves as gifted or deficient and remind us how deeply that choice is burned into our individual behavior. In terms of my own personal experience, I kind of bought the original sin. And I felt for the first 30-some years of my life that my job was to work on my deficiencies. And at that time, I was running groups, and Karen Horney was the expert on categorizing human pathologies. <laughs> and so I read her book, and every pathology she listed, I said, I've got that one. Peter goes on to remind us that this essential decision is also burned into our collective behavior in modern culture. So at every dimension of our society, both healing, therapeutic, faith, cultural, we believe that the way to a better future is through our deficiencies and what's wrong with us. For those curious about John and Peter's earlier years, they tell tales of their first awarenesses of what each of them sees as their primary gift beginning to come out. And they also talk about the essential and difficult task of breaking away from what others say you are good at and having the courage to name your own gifts. With this courageous decision, you befriend the gifts that can help you recenter yourself when things aren't going so well in your life. I, uh, I feel very often that when things don't look good, I can remember Ah, but you have this gift. And if you follow it, if you use it, if you manifest it, it will lead you the way. At the end of the interview, each of them describes what they're trying to currently learn more about related to gifts. It's a challenging and very hopeful interview with two of the most forward thinkers in the world of gifts and community building. Let's get started. Good morning, Peter and John. I'm so happy to talk to you uh, this week. When we started doing these podcast uh, series, uh, the two of you were some of the first people that we thought of. It's not hard to understand why going through all of your writings and books, the word gifts and the word community are just repeated themes over and over and over again. So I know both of you have done a lot of thinking about both of those words and their interconnections. And so we really wanted to spend some time talking to you. So welcome. Thank you, Bruce. So your voices are distinctive from each other, so it won't take people long to figure out which one of you is speaking. 
So I think I'd, I'd like to start by just asking you a question, uh, both of you a question. Do you remember where you first ran into the idea of gifts and you realized, oh, there's, there's something to this? When I was first at the university, I uh, was dealing with a famous sociologist uh, named Howie Becker. And he uh, told me about labeling theory, right? <laughs> which uh, basically emphasized how much the definition of people uh, and the relationships they have grows out of the words we use about them. And uh, so I, I sort of took that and translated it into uh, the idea that we have people who we consistently use uh, names for that uh, blinds us to who they are. And they are names, you know, like developmentally disabled or mentally troubled or ill or juvenile delinquent or children at risk. And once that way of thinking about them, the very description will lead you down a path of relationship and action that I think is always a dead end. And so the alternative is to say, everyone has a gift. And if I'm going to identify some characteristic of this person, it won't be that they, uh, they can't count money, but it will be that they make a lot of people happy while they're uh, filing cards at the library. And uh, so, at the library, this person is a center of joy. And that then redefines relationships and redefines possibilities for who people are. Well, I love listening to you, John. Uh, if I had any integrity, I would pass at this moment. Look, <laughs> <laughs> what, what you evoke in me is that labels blind us to who we are. Uh, and then it just evokes some uh, thoughts to your question, Bruce. My daughter got a master's degree uh, in interfaith ministry. And she got her, before that, she got a master's degree with Matthew Fox, who wrote a book called Original Blessing, mm -hmm. which was a, a, a confrontation to original sin. And so the notion that we're, we are a deficiency waiting to be evolved, he was excommunicated for denying that belief. So there's something very powerful in this question is, who am I? Am I a gift or am I a sinner? And so I think you're onto something, Bruce. It's not just a label, it's not a listing. It's not a, a early days eulogy, you know, I expect after I'm dead that some people will say nice things about me, but luckily I won't, ha won't be alive to test that theory. But I think there's something powerful. I, you know, in terms of my own personal experience, I kind of bought the original sin. And I felt for the first 30 some years of my life that my job was to work on my deficiencies. And at that time, I was running groups, and Karen Horney was the expert on categorizing human pathologies. 
<laughs> and so I read her book and every pathology she listed, I said, I've got that one. And so that was the orientation that somehow uh, that we can problem solve our way into the future. If you're an agency, you have to define needs and weaknesses to get funding. So at every dimension of our society, both healing, therapeutic, faith, cultural, we believe that the way to a better future is through our deficiencies and what's wrong with us. And then when I was 39, I heard an existential philosopher, Peter Kestenbaum, give a talk and he said, well, you feel lonely, you feel neurotic, that you feel isolated, feel like you got no real purpose in life. You're wondering, and I said, yeah. So I sat down and uh, he said, those are not problems to be solved. They are measures of your humanity. And I just, my head just <laughs> broke in half. I was doing a silly little workshop and all I did was want, pray to God that this guy would not come to my workshop and see how shallow <laughs> I was. And he did come and he forgave me, but that's really was a launching to me that realized that, uh, you know, call it gifts, call it possibilities. And so I think it's, it's, a, it's deeply embedded in us to think that faith, progress, future is a problem to be solved. And what John has represented, I first ran across gifts because I read a little pamphlet that an executive at AT&T gave me of John's work, Maureen Winograd. And I started reading John's work and I thought, wow, this is a whole another way to look at my life and the world. So it's both personal it's faith-based, it's sociological, and it's very politically practical to deny gifts because you can't raise a dollar on a gift. And that's part of the politics of it. You can't raise a dollar on a gift. Yeah. And uh, so I think what you're doing is extremely important. I had one other thought as John was talking is that uh, when he said, how do you introduce yourself? Uh, it's not, if, if you can get people to say what they've chosen, it's a more powerful conversation than what happened to them. And my own belief is that the words are powerful. And if I tell you where I work, where I came from, none of that I chose, really. What I chose was my commitment. And I can't tell you what I'm committed to until I know what my gifts are. So when you ask people what their gifts are, it's a portal to commitment. So your good friend, Walter Brueggemann, um, said said something. I was sitting in a room with him somewhere, and he just it set me back in my seat. It was There was a long pause, and he said, uh, there are only two kinds of stories in the world, stories of your gifts and stories of your hurts. And that reminded me of the Latin root of the word medicine which goes back to, quote, the process or substance by which the wound is healed. And so mm -hmm. I'm wondering how you've been, both of you have been kind of talking around it. I'm wondering if you would talk a little bit about how gifts are healing. They're healing because they confront me. And uh, 
the pain, the woundedness of our lives, it doesn't go away. You know, uh, medicine has the illusion that it can use its own brilliance. But I feel when it comes to a system or a group or me, it's not like the wounds or the pain that I've experienced disappears. It just doesn't control me anymore. It doesn't own me. And we can talk about our wounds and failures. And in fact, uh, I heard somebody once say that most therapists go into doing therapy or preachers go into preaching, heal their own wounds. And then once the wounds are somewhat healed, they say, well, I learned how to do this. I might as well keep on. And, uh, and so I feel gifts give me a mechanism by which I learn to live with my pain, to learn to live with my woundedness, our woundedness, the woundedness of a culture and a nation. But it takes its power away that the wound and the pain no longer define who I am. And they just live within me. And once in a while they get triggered. But I feel gifts are a way to take power away from pain and wilderness. John? I, I think uh, that uh, the question that has occurred to me often is where did the gifts come from? <laughs> when you say, I have a gift, it's different than saying, I have a skill. A skill I uh, learned, and it was an activity or ability that I developed sort of under my own auspices. But a gift is not, I think, of that character. A gift is something that you're given. And uh, when you understand it that way, it is a treasure that you have and when you see that treasure then and you can invest it right in a direction for your life and it pulls you out of pain i think i uh i feel very often that when things don't look good I can remember, ah, but you have this gift. And if you follow it, if you use it, if you manifest it, it will lead you the way. And so, so in that sense, it is the balancing and liberating force that has been given to you and calls on you to express what you have been wonderfully given. And I think it always leads me forward in spite of the obstacles, in spite of the pain. I am, but you know, I have the gift and I need to illuminate it share it, then my life will get back in the center again. So the way I think about it. 
um, one of the advantages of aging, I think if we're paying attention as we get, we're able to have more of a balcony view on our life. So mm-hmm. following that, that thread, John, I want to ask uh, both of you, following that thread is, is you look back on your life, uh, knowing that, that all of us have many gifts to give. Can you, can you center or focus on one gift that you've tried uh, to bring to the world, probably unconsciously when you were younger. But looking back, is there one, and being as specific as you can, I think would be helpful for the listeners. What's one gift that that just is a repeated thread in your life that you've tried to give? You know, I, I'm very clear in my life about uh, the answer to that. When I was in the 11th grade, we had an English teacher who had been an officer in the Second World War, Miss Sparks, and uh, she uh, taught English. And a sequence within the uh, um, the, the junior year of of high school included public speaking. And so for six weeks, we were learning and giving public speeches. Um, toward the end of that year. She said to me, uh, John, you know, you have a gift. And I said, what is it? And she said, I think you have a gift for public speaking. I've got to say, at that point, I would never, ever have thought that. It wasn't something that was in my mind at all. And she said to me, you know, there are places where they value uh, your gift and they can help you magnify. And so she said, uh, uh, at Northwestern University, they have a school of speech and a department of public speaking. (laughs) And why don't you see if you can go there? And uh, fortunately, because we had no money, uh, I got uh, almost a full scholarship. And I went there, and from that point, uh, I also learned uh, about group dynamics and discussion as well as public speaking. And it has shaped all the rest of my life. And had she not said to me, John, you have a gift lifted it up so that I could see it, I think I might be running a motorcycle repair shop today. So the process, I think, of being around people and always trying to see their gift may also illuminate for them something they didn't see. And making gifts visible because mostly they tend to be invisible. I think a lot of institutional work is a way of ensuring that your gifts will not be used, right? Uh, is, is a central way of dealing with people. What is their gift? And, and maybe if I say the word, this young man will end up at 88 years of age, right? Uh, Spending a lot of time speaking. 
So it's, it's naming the gift that can be so empowering to anybody that we are related to. Peter, do you have an uh, early memory of, of a strong and kind of repeated well, and kind of gift? parallel in a way? Uh, Mrs. Murphy in my junior year of high school <laughs> said, you can write. Oh, my. Now, I didn't take her seriously because I didn't see a career path with that respect. But it was a powerful thing to have somebody you trusted say that to you. Uh, and then I thought I could talk. I was never the orator that John is because groups scared me to death. I was uh, involved in a sacred fraternity cer uh, ceremony when I was a junior in college, and I was supposed to say something with my hand on a skull. And oh. I, I never froze, my voice had never been frozen until then. And it terrified me. I was anxious. I had to leave the room. I came back and I finally finished. So the things that I got good at in some ways in terms of speaking, it took me a long time when I uh, discovered that I was never going to be a good speaker like John. Oh, and, come, come. <laughs> well, well, and then I decided in Dallas about to give a speech, thinking, looking at train schedules about how to get out of town and how long it would take them <laughs> to find me. I kind of went into the room and I said, I'm never going to be a great speaker, so why don't you just stand up and say something? And I stopped trying to give talks, and then I got good at it. I, I, uh, and so... People say, well, what do you do? I say, I type and I talk. <laughs> and and uh, it turned out fine. And then when I was 37, I gave a talk. And I got used to it. And Ray Bard came up to me after a talk at some kind of professional. He says, Peter, have you ever thought of writing a book about what you said? And I said, absolutely not. And uh, he said, would you write a book? I said, absolutely not. And he came back six months. Peter, would you write a book? No. Peter, would you write a book? No. He said, Peter, I guarantee you $20,000. Uh, if you don't make $20,000 in royalties in this book, I'll make up the difference. And I said, I'll write a book. And so I was bribed into writing and then, of course, I wrote the book. It took me six months. And then he went out of business the day after I finished the book. So much for my guarantee. But then, you know, I published a book in my 40 years old. And it worked. It was a consulting book. And after a couple of more experiences like that, I changed my mind about who I was. And I began to believe that I had ideas and that I could write. And so that was a huge shift for me. First half of my life, I would never have claimed I could write, even though Mrs. Murphy gave me a clue. And so I, the other thing I want to say about gifts is they are impossible to discern on your own. You can sit and meditate, and you can watch the mirror to see who's in that mirror. And I don't believe you'll ever know what your gifts are unless somebody in this specific looks at you for some reason and says, 
this is what you're good at. And it's a terrifying conversation because if I accept the fact that I have these gifts, then I am burdened with the accountability to use them. And if I can stay in my deficiencies, that's so easy. Because anytime anybody gives me feedback, including my present life situation, and my active family members, and they give me helpful feedback about what I, how I might improve, I, I so know how to handle that. It's unbelievable. I just say, thank you very much, my daughter, my wife. Good point. I'm working on it. And then I walk away unburdened. Whereas if somebody says you're a blessing or you, what you did to, was important for the gifts that you're representing, Bruce, I can't walk away from that. And it creates a sense of accountability in me that is, uh, requires courage. And, you know, it just makes a demand on me. And I think that's the reason we run from gifts is because of the, the demand that they carry. My uh, my friend Michael Mead likes to say, I've heard him say it many times, the best thing that can happen to you is to discover your gifts and the worst thing that can happen to you is to discover your gifts. So it's a interesting thing, Peter, when you're talking about being able to discern your gifts on, on your own. One of the struggles I, I, I've heard people talk about running into is that oftentimes, oftentimes um, we make the path of our life uh, based on what other people tell us we're good at, even though we don't feel particularly called to do those things. But we get the attention, we get praise, um, and I especially encounter young people a lot. We take people on kind of quiet, quiet walks um, in Europe for eight or ten days, and many of them have uh, have graduated from college and have realized they really have no interest in doing what people have told them they're good at their whole life. They have a, they have really something urgent they want to do, but they don't feel very good at it. Um, so how do you discern between a, a calling what people and what people just say you're good at? Well, I think that's what John said, that the skills and gifts are two different things. Uh, Everybody who loves you has something in mind for you. And so from a very early age, the parent says, all I want is my child to be happy. That's the biggest lie in the world. I've had six of them. And all you want is your child to live out your own unfulfilled dreams. That's the only reason I can come up with that justifies living with and having children. And so, that's not what your gift is. That's what expectations have been. And you uh, learn to be accomplished and skilled at certain things, which is a totally different conversation. And at some point, if you really want to live into your gifts, you have to say to your parents, surrogate parents, whoever they were, I'm not the child you had in mind. Thank you for your intentions. Thank you for putting up with me. You know. Uh, but and then it's a separate thing when they're walking with you, Bruce, and you're asking them what's in your heart, what's the, what do you really, what's your gift? Uh, most of the time, it does not promise a great economic future, and it takes the support 
of a caring person like you for them to make that distinction between what they've studied and what offers a future path and uh, what they would choose. And that choice mostly is a gift rather than a skill. Mm -hmm. Bruce, uh, it, it seems to me that you used the word vocation and uh, calling. And those are, are terms that have dimensions of uh, spirituality, I believe. So I've always been interested in people who speak not of, uh, of ha having, meeting the expectations of others, but who say, I have a calling. And I've always been interested in how does a calling sound? <laughs> What what is the the nature of the voice that does the calling that is your um, gift? And it's interesting then to have have a discussion with people about what do you think is a is an environment or a culture that will provide an opportunity for you to be called. Because it does seem to me we live in, in a culture where the culture calls us to be defined categorically around some purpose of some other institution, association, etc. What is the nature of an environment or culture that provides the both the incentive and the possibility of discovering your vocation and i think that uh that exploring that kind of an environment would be a very useful thing to think about it culturally peter uh once said something that had a huge effect on me we were working on a book and we were talking about a good neighborhood. We, uh, I said to them, <laughs> uh, it would be, we want in this neighborhood to have kind people, people who have that gift. And Peter said, well, no, I don't think so. What we want to have is a neighborhood where it calls forth kindness from everybody. And so I think the same thing about, about gifts. What, what is the nature of a nest, a community, a place, a set of relationships, a group that calls forth your vocation and your gift? You're not alone in this. It's great. It means that uh, you, we're a collective product. You know, a lot That's of change theory says you start from within and bring it into the world. I have that backward. That I think that what distinguishes us, we have done okay from them that haven't, is we grew up in a different kind of context or environment that, uh, 
and that to me explains more than to say well look at the people who are marginal uh, what we have to do is restore the family we don't have to restore the family i don't wouldn't know how to restore a family we can work on a, on a local culture as john said that has a bias towards gifts kindness possibilities and doesn't have the Napoleon hat of the normal curve that says you have to be successful accomplished. Uh, so I spent my life working on the small collective. I had a choice because I could have been a therapist because I certainly had enough practice being a patient. And I just always felt that for me, uh, a small group or, uh, you know, which means up to 150 or 200 people or a neighborhood is the source of real possibility. And it's hard to get that point across because we're so individualistic. But I think, you know, what, what, what John says is, is, is true. I also had another thought I wanted to share in that, uh, that I got from Peter Kestenbaum. And he says that, uh, you know, do I discover a calling? Where does a calling come from? Does it come from God? Does it come from genes, context? And he said, basically, your destiny is the act of choosing your fate. But somehow your fate is nothing that I uh, initiated. It occurred to me. I was born a wandering Jew, grew up in the Second World War, etc. That was my fate. I, I didn't produce that. But then at some point, you choose your fate. They all right, got it. And then that becomes destiny. That becomes purpose. Uh, uh, another thing that is worth considering is, uh, is there a practical way to uh, develop uh, in a local community, in a neighborhood? Um, a sense of gifts and their contribution as a way to define a new kind of culture. And uh, here I, I'd like to remind us that uh, up in the, the most northerly big, big city in the world called Edmonton, Canada, uh, about a million hundred thousand people up there. And uh, a couple of people got together on a block and began to uh, knock on the doors of their neighbors and sit with them for a while. And uh, basically, they were doing a gift interview. They were asking these people what they thought they had as a, as a special gift. And as they did that, from door to door to door to door, they began to see that on their block, the people there had such, a, it, was, it, it was like uh, a box of jewels. There was such beauty, such diversity, such possibility, and that this, this, box had been unopened 
And now they had opened it. And the question is, what do we do now that we see all these diamonds and rubies and emeralds and pearls? And they saw, I think, correctly, that these gifts are of much significance if they're not given. A gift isn't really a gift until it's given. And so they then began to identify the kinds of gifts people had that if everybody knew about it or somebody knew about it or they compared or four people would be put together, that they could begin the process of transforming what their box was. It was well, a box of jewels and it had been strung together and, and they had made by these connections a necklace, metaphorically. It had such a transforming effect on that block that other blocks wanted to do the same thing and uh, then the next neighborhood heard about it and, and wanted to do the same thing. And the government heard about it because they could see that on these blocks where they were gift-centered in their contributions, that in those blocks, the, uh, the nature of, of citizenship and productivity uh, had made a big difference in the life of the city. Uh, because it magnified capacity. And so uh, in Edmonton now, they have something called, I think Peter, you and I are even on the board, although I don't know that a board has ever met, called the Abundant Community Initiative. 115 neighborhoods, at least officially, and now they have about 50 of them where the blocks know about their gifts and they connect and share their gifts. And that is transforming Edmonton into, I think, a city that is alive and vital because people have been called forward around their gifts rather than their problems or their dilemmas or their angers with the city. It's a, it, it is the most transforming city initiative that I've ever seen. You know, it's a, it has practical outcomes, like it's a safer street. Yeah. Kids do better in school. People are healthier. Elders are less lonely. And it's an alternative to the institutional solutions of police, school, and retirement warehouse. So it's a very practical thing that John's describing. I think some people are seeing that. You know, I, I want to, one of their key elements, which Howard Lawrence is, is a connector. And what's interesting to me is, you know, some people are just natural connectors. It's not just finding the gifts. You can't do this online. Uh, and some of the connectors we used to call busybodies. We used to call people that are nosy. Can't mind their own business. 
And so part of the shift in thinking is to say, well, where are the people that we never had a use for before? Might have been nuisances. Some of our children are the ones that don't do well in school. And so I think the gift mindedness, the way you and John talk about it, is a way of finding use and value with people that we thought were nuisances or not good at something. So both of you have spent your lives learning. You're both in the category of eager learner. So in the in the in the category of gifts, I'm wondering if each of you would comment for a moment about what you're trying to figure out now. What are you trying to learn more about related to gifts? I, I, uh, I'm trying to make sense of the world around me, and I see so much disparity and so much isolation and so much economic injustice. And in one neighborhood, your life expectancy is 20 years shorter than another neighborhood. And I'm trying to make sense how our economic system and the world of neighborhood and relationship and gifts and healing all tie together. I just feel that the violence in this world is a social construction. That the idea of poverty is something we are making up. And that, as John said early on, it's in the labeling and trying to so-called solve these problems that we're making zero progress. And that eats away at me every day of my life. And so it's taking things, my gift is taking things from a variety of realms, whether it's faith or philosophy or economics or architecture or journalism or small groups or history or uh, Buddhist practice or yoga and see how the way we've not connected them is causing the suffering in the world. And I, that's what I keep, and every time I make a little link, I feel that I have another reason to go on and some purpose. And when I realize that it's the belief that what I have is not enough that produced slavery, that insight takes me somewhere. Then I feel there's a little opening to action. That's really the what I'm trying to make sense of, and I'm totally outside any areas that I will ever have any competency in. So one of my gifts, or maybe it's just my stubbornness, is to be willing to learn about things and disciplines outside. I, I haven't. I I worked in the field of organization development for 40 years, and I haven't read a book in that field. Uh, in a long, long time. And so I feel going outside my own uh, idea. And then I find somebody who says something that turns my mind upside down. And that, to me, are the high points of my life. And John was one of them. John, when he talked about gifts, just I said, oh, my God, I'm ruined. I have to start over <laughs> <laughs> when Peter Kestenbaum told me that what I thought was my pathology was a measure of my humanity, 
and and Eve took the hit for us by biting the apple. Okay, start over again. Tim Galway told me once that I can teach you how to play tennis and never give you a stroke instruction. Get out of here, man, until you keep waiting. And Walter told me the Exodus was my story. I said, oh my God, Walter, you've given me a memory. I thought I was born in the 30s. (laughs) All of those things are stunning to me. I'm waiting for another one. Uh, and you'd have to say that that, uh, that what we've just heard has uh, happened because there is a human being who has courage. Yeah. We we don't want to miss courage as a gift, and I believe it. I believe it is a gift, and it cer- certainly is manifested more in uh, some people than other people. The thing that I right now. Um, working on, worrying about, thinking about, is what would precipitate more and more the the local identification of gifts as the way we are reconstructing our neighborhoods and our primary relationships? How does that get precipitated? Uh, And uh, what, 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 if you thought this is a culture we're talking about, it's a real problem. I don't know how you can introduce a culture. <laughs> but what I do know is making visible the invisible, the gifts, is about as near as I have seen to the basic knowledge that will transform people's place, recognizing that the identification of gifts is uh, is not something that has uh, much consequence. What may, has the consequence is that they are given. And so what calls forth from each of us on our block, the gifts that we have that will make all of our lives better and take a lot of the burdens that the present system lays on us off as we share together, lifting that burden and finding another way. Yeah, I would say, Bruce, what you're doing in your work here is the system that John refers to or call it the culture or call it the habits or call it the education, anything, uh, is based on three things. One, the belief that there's something wrong with me. <laughs> and if I can get you to believe there's something wrong with you, I own you. Okay, because then I can help you. And so the idea that I know what, what's best for you is a very colonial idea. Mm-hmm. The other is, if you look around yourself, you say, I must be crazy. Because <laughs> the way the dominant narrative describes things is not the way I see it. Okay. And and the third thing is that in the end of the day, theologically, I begin to think I'm alone. And so when John talks about courage and what you're doing, Bruce, among a thousand other things, is letting people know you're not crazy and you're not alone and there's nothing wrong with you. There's something called a human being. Sorry about that. And no bot can take that away from you. 
That's great, Peter. Mm. That's well, what a great, great uh, way to to go towards an ending here. I'd like to do one more thing. I usually do it at the beginning, but it feels right, more right to do it at the end. I'm, I want to I want to ask uh, both of you just to if 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 we were in the room, Peter, I would use one of your favorite sayings: "Get knee to knee." Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I'd like you to just center yourself and take a couple of breaths and tell me the one word that comes to you this morning uh, when you hear the word gift. What word comes to you more than any other when you just hear the word gift, a single word? Can I use two? <laughs> <laughs> That's because you studied oratory, John. <laughs> <laughs> yes, John. Uh, I think it's... It's the light that shows another way. I would say gratitude and faith. You know, I, I've never had much interest in outcomes, unfortunately, but I've always had faith. Well, you're both operating in the true spirit of community organizers, breaking all the rules. Neither one of you could come up with a single word, which is, uh, which I wouldn't be able to either. So. Um, I just so appreciate this hour with both of you and um, and the balcony view that you've spent so much time um, um, honing um, as you get to what we what we all call the third arc of our lives here. And so um, thank you very much, and I hope you have a great day today. Bye bye. Thank you, Bruce. And you as thank well. Thank you, John. Thank you. Right. Take care. Thank you for listening. To hear more podcasts, explore our gift library, or learn about our training opportunities, visit us at www.coregift.org.